Well, we didn't get to get into this last Wednesday, so we saved it here for this one. But in this particular part of Zechariah 6, there are prophecies regarding Jesus coming as king and ruler, and we want to take a look at those. There are a lot of things that are stated in here to be done, and the one thing I really wanted to key on here at the end is the part of the verse that says, And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So we want to take a look at this. Are things that are the will of God dependent on our obedience? And so we're going to take a look at the, the prophecies in regard to that, as well as a number of other things. The last time we were together, we took a look at the first half of Zechariah 6, and we examined the question about the evil things that go on in the world and where is God? Some wonder, where is he? Why does he allow all these things to happen? And we saw that in Zechariah's first vision that the same forces that God had dispatched were just there on a observation mission. But the day will come when they were sent on a mission to judge the sin. And God has determined when that time was. We looked at the parable of the, the wheat and the tares. We saw that judgment coming too soon would hinder the harvest overall. And that may be a reason why he does not do it. And I pose the question that I wonder if Satan feels he can bake God into harvesting too soon by stepping up the evil. And I don't know about that or not, but God is apparently not taking the bait so far. The forces of evil, of course, appear more visible because they depend on fear in order to increase the power and effectiveness that they have. But all the fear that they can muster will not come close to the power of God waiting to be released upon them. The forces of God are by nature stronger and more effective, and they need absolutely nothing added to them to accomplish what God has sent them to do. They will get it done. They don't need fear or anything else going on. So that was Zechariah chapter 6. The first part, first part is really easy to to get the understanding, how do we apply this to this? And one of the things I always look for whenever we get into scriptures is how does this apply to us? How can we make this work for, in our life? It's one of the more important things to do. Looking at the second half, it's a little bit tougher to come up with that. It took me a little while to, to really spend some time with it to get hold of this. I actually went out, and you can do this too if you want to. I looked up on YouTube, Zechariah, chapter 6, 9 through, uh, well, what is it? Uh, 9 through... 15, and uh, found a couple of people that had preached on it, and you can go out there and do that too if you want to. Um, I made it through one or two of them, and I just didn't understand why in the world are you even teaching this? All you're really doing is just relaying facts, and I never want to get the Word of God to be where we're just relaying the facts of it. There needs to be a reason that this is written. There needs to be a reason that we can, a, a way that we can use this in our life, and so one of the reasons that we do here at the church Sundays and Wednesdays is Sundays is always a topical one. Sundays we we take a, something in the Word of God and we follow the topic to the Word so you get the overall view of Scripture on that. On Wednesdays we take either a book study or a character study. And the reason for that is there's a lot of Scriptures that we will avoid if we don't have to go there. And when we're going through the book of Ezekiel, how many of you remember a couple of chapters I even told you? Boy, I tell you what, I... I just as soon skip over this chapter. That one with the two daughters. Uh, boy, that was a tough one for me. 
But they're in the Word. They're in the Word for a reason, and we need to stay with it until we find out why is this in the Word? Why is it here for me? Because God wanted this written down for all eternity, not just to tell us what had happened, but to tell us how this can help our, our lives here. So that's what we go after Zechariah chapter 6, 9 through 15 to see. Let's begin here at verse 9. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have come from Babylon, and go to the same go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Now, one of the persons that I was looking at, they just had a little short 10-minute thing that they were doing on this, and you may go through there, and you may, may find that it intrigues you. I, I listened. I got through about seven minutes, and I finally said, that's it, I can't take it anymore. Uh, they were deriving some things from the meanings of these names. And the, when I heard what they were going to get to, I thought, well, that sounds interesting. Let me see. Uh, I, they actually had a name, um, meaning for the first one that was completely different from everything else I've seen written down. Um, <clears throat> but that was, it's amazing what gets up there and what people will do in, in teaching this. But if you go up there and you find any of them and you look at them, I would love to hear your feedback on them. And, of course, you may even find some that are different from the ones that I have found. But he said, To receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have come from Babylon, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. So these folks were coming. It doesn't really tell us whether they were just arriving then, whether they had arrived a little bit earlier. But it seems like this is a, a, a group that has come uh, or at least three, these three came maybe with a smaller group. Not does not seem like they came with one of the two main groups that came over so far. And they came and they brought this. Now maybe they responded to some of the prophetic things that were spoken over there in, in Babylon. And they finally said, you know what, we need to be obedient to this. And they just decided to leave. And as they were getting ready to go, God said, I want you to take this gold and silver with you. This has a special purpose. So they brought some gold and they brought some silver. It's not like they didn't have access to any gold and silver over there in uh, Jerusalem. But God sent this along. He told them, I want you to make sure that you use this. Receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have come from Babylon, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. So this is all to be done at the same time. What the importance was for it to be done on the same day, I don't know. But these gifts that were brought in were to be used and used right away. The names, as I found in several places, confirm this. Heldai means robust. Tobijah means God's goodness. And Jediah means God knows. Now, one particular person who commented on this sees in the meaning of these names the sense that God knew through his goodness he would put his king on his throne and he would do it in a robust manner. Um, could be. Uh, it could just be the names of the people who responded to what God said to do. So whatever way we go with that. Let's go to verse 11. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now the office of king and priest are separate in the Old Testament. Man's idea to join them never went very well. I believe the first time that they tried to be joined was in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And that was with Saul. And Saul decided that since Samuel was delayed, had not arrived when he felt that he should, 
he decided to step into the priest role and offer the sacrifice. And that was not received well by God at all. There's another time, though, in Second Chronicles chapter 26, where Uzziah did the same thing. Now, he was a good king. God had good things to say about him. But he tried to function as priest. It seemed like he may have been a little bit high on pride at the time. He had just come off of a very big victory. Maybe uh enemy had whispered in his head, look how good you are, look how great you are, and he believed it. I can step into this role as priest, and surely the enemy was leading him into that because he knew God will be upset with this, and he was stricken with leprosy for the rest of his life. But throughout the history of Israel, God had uh, had a separation between the religious and the civil leadership of, of Israel. There was the king and there was the priest. The priest line came through Levi. Of course, it was not always supposed to be that way, but after the rebellion at the mountain, Levi was the only tribe who stayed out of that. So the priesthood went to them. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. If he followed after God, the kingship would have come through the tribe of Benjamin. But since he didn't, we went into another one, and that's where Judah was picked. And Judah came up, and David had stepped up with that. So the Davidic line comes from Judah. That's where the kings were to come. The priest line came from the Levites. High priest comes from the descendants of Aaron. So those things were set up in um, Revelations chapter 1 and verse 4 through 6. Let me read this for you. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now Jesus Christ, it calls him first here in verse 5, the faithful witness. That seems to be depicting his role as a prophet. The firstborn from the dead would seem to uh, pinpoint his ministry as priest because he was the first one to be raised from the dead and what was the first thing he did? Descended to the Father to present his blood on the altar. And ruler over the kings of the earth, that of course would be him as, as king. So Jesus is going to be all three, prophet, priest, and king. That is spoken about here in Revelation. And there's uh, other places that we'll look at as well. Now, Jesus, and if Jesus is going to be this role, it is interesting to note that if you want to see the equivalent of Jesus' name in Hebrew, the equivalent of his name is Joshua. So, when so the high priest here being Joshua, the name may also be uh, typified there of the coming Jesus. But this... This Joshua, here in Zechariah, they're going to make an elaborate crown, which the crown here is going to be showing that he is king. And they're going to set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. Now, we already do have a king. Well, for them, as far as a king, we have someone from the house of David, Zerubbabel, who's already ruler here. It would seem that you could put that crown right on his head. But... There could be a problem with that. First off, if they hear back in the, uh, if the Persian kings hear that they have just put a crown on the guy they made governor, they may see that as rebellion. And they may have a problem with that. 
putting it on the high priest, they may not have had as much of a problem with it. But it's more depicting that on one individual is going to be the priest and the king reign. This is coming. So this is what Zechariah is basically prophesying about here in this chapter when he talks about these things with Joshua, the high priest. It said to make an elaborate crown. This was not just a headdress of a high priest. Some people might want to try and say, well, it's just a headdress. It is not. It's, it is an elaborate crown. It's made of gold and it's made of silver. It was made for a king. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. So that is a prophecy in the Gospels that Jesus would be this. And we know there's many other places where this is as well. Now some will look at this text that is here and they are so convinced that their interpretation of these events is correct that they will make a judgment on the text and say that Joshua's name was errantly copied instead of Zerubbabel's. And they will actually make a change to the text that we see. Instead of understanding the text for what God has, has written, I'll make these changes. This is in the, within the church. We're not talking about secular people that do this. We're talking about people that are in the church. And they will teach at some higher educational places and they'll tell them, you know, when we get to this chapter, well, that's uh, an errant error in the uh, copying. They just put the wrong person's name in there. This should actually be Zerubbabel. Uh, I don't believe so at all because this is a prophetic thing and of all the things that are in the context, it would seem that this is pointing to a future event because Joshua is to have this crown put on his head and then from he just wears it the one time and then from there it goes right on into the temple and it stays in the temple. That's where it's going to be. Now it's interesting to, to wonder. We don't hear any mention of this. This is the only time we see this, this mentioned is that this crown is here. We know they made it. We know they went through the ceremony. And more than likely, if they did all that, they put it into the temple. We have no record of it being in the temple. But it would be interesting to note if Jesus was in the temple all those times, whether he was in there and that crown was in there as well. That that crown made it through all those years and this is the one for whom it was intended. Don't know about that because all through the Gospels, that crown is not mentioned. But it is amazing how readily people are willing to change the word to fit their idea of what it should say. And not just here in this passage, we've seen it in other places as well. Now, God is speaking, what God here is speaking to us is not just what is going on, but also what is to come. Verse 12, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now this is speaking of something future here. The temple is not finished. Remember these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, came to spur on the work. They had already started the work. The work had begun. But they hadn't finished it. But this prophecy is that this this person, this branch, was going to come in and he was going to build it. That's, we're not talking about building it right now. We're talking about finishing what was started. So that's a change in the language. And that would seem to indicate something more future. 
<clears throat> we'll talk about this a little bit more too, but the role of the prophet, it is so important that the prophets do this. The role of the prophet is to say what God said, not to say what they think he meant. And there's a lot of prophets today who get in big trouble with this. They say what they think God means. They don't speak God's words. If this prophet had not spoken these words, we wouldn't have the understanding that we do from, from this. Uh, we have to go back here to Zechariah. This is a place we didn't really uh, spend time on when we we're going through because it's easier to take all this together. But in Zechariah chapter 3, the branch is talked about again. So we're going to flip on back to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Now we heard about this kind of a situation going on before in other places, but here it is in Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord. Satan is standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now I got a question about this, and I don't think there's going to be any way for me to get an answer on this. But my question for this is, Zechariah is seeing this in, the, in a vision in chapter, chapter 3. He has seen all this go on. Does Joshua know this happened? Is Zechariah seeing something that took place and Joshua was called up into heaven and was standing there and facing the devil and the angel of the Lord was standing there by the side? Or did this happen and Joshua never know that anything had gone on? When Zechariah writes this word down, oh, I tell you, I wish I could be there for to see this. What does Joshua say? Does Joshua say, yeah, that's exactly what happened. How did you know? Or does Joshua say, really? Did that happen? And I don't know which way that it is. Um, get no indication from Jeremiah or Joshua's standpoint that anything happened there, but we really don't have too much of his words to be able to judge that. So the Lord said to Satan, verse 2, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will set clothes, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Now, if Joshua, the high priest that God called up into heaven to stand before the angel of the Lord, whom Satan himself feels he needs to oppose, is clothed in filthy garments. Dear Lord, what are we wearing? Or what were we wearing? Because here, he's in this role. And he said, no, no, we need to take care of that. Take away the filthy garments from him. And the filthy garments are taken away. He is uh, basically standing there with no garments. See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. 
So the process is not let's take off a little bit of the sin, a little bit of the, the awful garments, and put on some other new ones. No, the process is we get rid of the sin all all together. It is all gone. Now we start putting you in with the stuff you're supposed to be wearing. Now we put on the the new ones, and then we get to a verse that I uh, spent a probably more time than I should have. But I was trying to get to this mystery, figure this this part out. There are there are a few times in my life that I have wished that I studied Hebrew as much as Greek. Not many, but there are a few. This is one of them. Because I saw something in here and I just could not figure this out. Verse 5. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. Alright, when I read this whole thing through, it seems like Zechariah interjected. He's seen all this stuff that's going on with the angel of the Lord. And he steps up and says, you know what? Let's put a clean turban on his head too. And I tell you, that just seems so out of character for Zechariah. Zechariah is, is very good keeping his mouth shut and just watching what's going on and writing it down. In all the visions we have, he, he doesn't really interject a whole lot. He may ask some questions, but I've never seen him give orders. So I went through every translation that I could find. Even dug out one that I don't pull out a whole lot because um, there's some complications with it, just the way that he writes it. I uh, went back and got the Moffat translation. And Mafa translation does deal with it a little bit, but not enough to bring any clarity to it that it was worthwhile to bring it in. So I pulled out two translations that do show this just a little bit differently. The first is the Bible in basic English, the VBE, and let them put a clean headdress on his head. So they put a clean headdress on his head, clothing him with a clean robes, and said to him, and to him he said, See, I have taken your sin away from you. The New Living Translation. Then I said they should go also place a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean priestly turban on his head and dressed him in new clothes while the angel of the Lord stood by. One of these translations kind of goes along with the others that Zechariah is interjecting this. The BBE is putting this in a different way. It's really the only one beside Moffat that I could find that, that altered this. And so I went in to uh, look at a number of different things that would break down the Hebrew text for me. Because it's unusual that there would be a different translation when every single other translation that I could find went with the same format that the King James did, the New King James. But apparently, there is some debate on this. And if you want to look at some, I believe uh, the pulpit commentary is one I actually do enjoy as far as commentaries go, if you ever want one that you want to look at. It is maybe longer than some people would, would like to, but it's not super long. But he does have some good detail that's in there. And so he's one who will break this down. There's a few others as well, but they are not as easily to not as easy to find. But if you look this up in the pulpit, you will find that it says here that it may be better in keeping to say that the same person who has been speaking continue to speak than to say that someone new interjected it. Now, in the Greek, I'd be able to break it down for you in a minute and be able to say, all right, well, this is telling us that the angel spoke or that Zechariah spoke, and it'd be pretty easy to be able to tell that. But Hebrew is just a different animal. So uh, I just have to go off on, on what other things do. I think it, it works better 
if we see the angel giving the commandment than Zechariah interjecting one. Now, it doesn't really change the whole outcome on the whole thing. That's why I say, you know, I probably spent more time on it than I should have. But I just like to understand these things before we uh, move on. So I kind of go with the thing that the angel of the Lord is the one who said put a turban on his head and not Zechariah interjecting something in here. But either way, we still get to the same place. So So Joshua is clothed with new robes. He has been the, the enemy. Satan himself has been there to rebuke him. This is how important this work is that Zerubbabel and Joshua are doing. The devil himself is involved in, in coming against him. We don't know how he came against it. That kind of thing is not, we're not told that that's the persecution that they were getting in the land. If this was the problems they were having legally, uh, we don't know any of those, those things. We just know that there was opposition and Zechariah has seen this scene in heaven. So he's not seeing the scene on the earth. He's seeing this scene in heaven. The Lord rebuked him. And that was all he had to do. It's pretty good you have an enemy. You don't have to really fight him. You just got to rebuke, rebuke him. And, and that took care of it. Now, the devil, if he's opposing him in heaven, more than likely, this is being done in an accusative way. Whenever we see the picture of Satan in heaven, he's there as the accuser. He's there accusing people. I can't see that being any different here, so I would see that he's opposing him. At least one of the ways he's opposing him is in the accusing. Joshua, how can you have him as high priest? Look at this in his life. Look at this in his life. Look at this in his life. And God just stops the whole thing. He says, all right, I rebuke you, and let's take away all the filthy garments off of him. And let's put on clean ones. Now, I have cleaned him. What more are you going to say about that, Satan? And that kind of silenced that whole thing. So God removed his iniquity the same way he removes ours. But it seemed important for Joshua to see it. It seemed important for Zechariah to see what had gone on here. And so he removed all that. Verse 6. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways... And if you keep my command, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among those, among these who stand here. This is somewhat similar to what Joshua got in chapter 1 of the book of Joshua. He got a similar uh, promise from him. He had a few more things that were added in there. But the promise that is made to, to Joshua here and the privileges and the access that he would have in the presence of God We have a similar one in Hebrews when it says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now God bestowed that upon him as the high priest and we also are called into the role of priest as well when we are are born again in the the church of God. Verse 8. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions... Who sit before you, for they are wondrous, they are a wondrous sign, for behold, I am bringing forth my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription. Thus the Lord of hosts and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Now the branch is used as a title for Messiah. And I believe I left in your outline a, a 
few places where you can see this. Isaiah 4, 2, 11, 1, and Jeremiah 23, 5, and 33, 15. A branch is associated with being fruitful and with life. And now not only is he called the branch, but he is also called a stone. And this is given as the image of the Messiah's traits as well. So he is a branch, there is life there, but there's also a stone would demonstrate steadfastness and a foundation. In Isaiah 28, verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Well, there he's called a stone as, as well. In, in Psalm 118, 22, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Matthew 21, 42, Jesus quotes this, Have you never read in the Scriptures a stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And in Ephesians 2, 20, Jesus is again referred to as being the chief cornerstone. This particular stone is said to have seven eyes. These seven eyes are mentioned again in chapter 4 and verse 10. And I would say they're very likely to be the same as the seven spirits of God in Revelation that we read just a little bit ago. For they are the things that, that see upon the earth. The seven eyes may have their roots in the ancient world, thinking that the eyes represent knowledge. Because it's through the eyes that we tend to learn most things. Seven is, of course, the number of God's perfection. So as eyes represent a knowledge to them, God has a perfect knowledge in these things. And the eyes are always looking around and he is collecting understanding. That was the part of Zechariah's first vision, the reconnaissance that was going on with the four horsemen. When he gets to part here with the vine and fig tree, it is an expression of peace and prosperity. This is looking forward to the peace and prosperity under the rulership of Messiah that would come. That is future. But the temple that is being spoken of here in Zechariah chapter 6 is a future temple. Build the temple that you're building, but there is a future one that is coming. There is one who is coming who will be both king and priest. And he will build this. He is the branch. He is this, the son of Jesse. He is the stone that the builders rejected. This is who is, is coming. So it is a very prophetic Prophecy of what is to come. Let's go back over to Zechariah chapter 6. We're at verse 14. Now the elaborate crown shall be for memorial in the temple of the Lord for Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Now that word there, Hen, uh, some see it as maybe a nickname for, uh, uh, <clears throat> for Josiah. Some see it as the the name, the meaning of the name, I believe the name, meaning of the name was, um, oh, I didn't write it down. Uh, it may have been goodness or something like that. It may have been for the good good things that he was doing and opening the home. But it doesn't seem to be talking about a different person. It seems to be going back to the same person. Uh, we're not introducing a new character, in other words. Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So we set the elaborate crown. It's supposed to be a memorial in the temple of the Lord. That's where it's going to be moved to the temple. So this crown is put on him for the ceremony. And to his credit, he doesn't take any of that to heart. He doesn't think, well, now I'm king. 
and try and act on, in that way. No, he says, all right, this is just uh, a demonstration of things to come. I will be there. I will stand in that place. But the crown then goes over to the temple. He doesn't seem to pick up any of that. As far as we can tell from everything in history, uh, these two had a great working relationship with each other. Now this was... Um, uh, let's get to, get to the end part here in verse 15. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey. If you diligently obey. It would seem that the future temple and the coming of Messiah are a certain thing. They're a sure thing. So why is it linked to their obedience? Why does it matter if they obey now to bring the coming temple later on? So I, I broke this down. I don't know if it, other people may have broken it down maybe in a similar way. Maybe they changed something different. I just, as my mind puts this together, I just wrote this down this way. There are three types of prophecies. Three types of prophecies. There are those that come because of man's behavior. Because of things that man did, these prophecies came out. Adam and Eve were of such. When Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord came down and he gave a prophecy of how things were going to unfold after that. Nineveh, because of their disobedience, prophecy came, came through the prophet Jonah, and they were able to avoid the, initially, but then eventually they, they fell into the destruction that the prophecy called. But that prophecy came because of their hearts, because of their disobedience. Israel's destruction, there were prophecies that came talking about Israel and Jerusalem being destroyed, being carried off into captivity. That came about because of their disobedience. Basically, this is what's going, this is what is going to happen regardless of what God had desired. This is what these prophecies are. God may have desired something different, but because of man's actions, a prophecy has come and this is what will, will happen. And they're all through the Word of God. I just gave you a couple examples. You can look at Jeroboam. God gave Jeroboam a promise about how he was going to make him uh, a, a house, enduring house just like David. But he went off. He went in a different direction. Because of his disobedience, the prophecy came from the uh, prophet who was uh, commissioned. Go over to him. Tell him these are the things that are going to happen. This is how his house is going to be destroyed. And so he delivered that message. But these are, are prophecies that come not because God wants them to happen, but because man has disobeyed God, the prophecy has come. That's the first group of, of things that have, have come. Most of the time they're going to come, there's a way out. Not always. Sometimes you've already disobeyed the way out, and he's just telling you, this is what's going to happen. Remember when the prophecy came about Josiah, when Josiah had read the word of God, and they became repentant, and so they repented before God, and the prophet was sent. And he said, everything you read is going to happen. It's still coming. But it won't happen in your day because of your repentance. But it was still going to come. So that's the first type of prophecy. Here's the second type. Those that come from God's desired plan. God has a desired plan. He says, this is the way I want things to go. And so he sends prophecies to describe his desired plan. Abraham to be a vehicle of the blessing, that was God's desired plan. But it does require that Abraham do some things. He had to be obedient. He had to be uh, willing to, to do what God had said to do. And of course, the ultimate one was when he had to sacrifice his son or be willing to sacrifice his son. He was willing. He put him on the altar. God stopped him. But because of that obedience, God was able to fulfill the prophecy of what he said he wanted to do. Moses to be the deliverer. 
This is God's prophecy that he said, you're going to be the deliverer. You're going to deliver Israel. But it still required Moses to be obedient. And he resisted that for a long time. Uh, the first generation out of Egypt to go into the promised land. God prophesied that they would go into the promised land. That was God's desire. But they kept this believing God, kept this trust in God, kept murmuring against God. And so he said, all right, fine. You guys aren't going in. We're going to go with the next generation. And so that promise didn't happen. God desired it to, but it, it didn't happen. Jesus being born to Mary. That was God's desired plan. But he needed her to get on board. And when she finally said those words, may it be unto me as you say, uh, then, all right, now we got something to, we can work with here. And the angel was off. Jesus to the disciples, I will make you fishers of men. That was his stated desire. That was a prophetic word that he spoke about then. And it happened for 11 of them. But one of them it didn't happen for. Because of their disobedience. So God, God desires to do what he said, but there is some cooperation from people that is needed. And if we don't get that cooperation, we can't accomplish what it is that he said that he would do. That's the second area. Here's the third. Those that come from God's declared plan. These are prophecies that come from God's declared plan. And these are the ones that we're going to get the, the best idea so we can answer this question. Here are some in this area. This is, these are just ones God has said, this is what I am going to do. I don't care what you guys are doing down here on earth. This is what I am going to do. I don't need anybody to believe God for this. This is what I am going to do. That's what these prophecies are. First one that I have in my list here to give to you is the Passover. God said, I am coming through the land on this night. The destroyer is coming with me. And any house on which the blood is put in the land of Goshen, I will pass over. And the death will not come to that house. He said, I'm coming. I don't need you to believe for this. This is what's happened. Did it happen? Did some people believe it? Did some people not believe it? Yep. It didn't make any difference. It still happened. Next one is Israel returned from Babylon. God said it's going to happen. They're going to come. In fact, he even said Cyrus is going to be the one who does it. And Cyrus was the one who did it. Cyrus was the one who released it. God said this is what's going to happen. No one really knew what was going to happen until Daniel uh, pursued the word. Oh, there it is, 70 years. All right, we're at that 70 years. What's going to happen now? The day of Pentecost. God didn't need anybody to believe for the day of Pentecost, did he? He said that's going to happen. The day of Pentecost is coming. He had told him in the Old Testament, the day of Pentecost will come 50 days after the, the, the day that Jesus ended up rising on. 50 days they were going to have. And so 50 days from that, the day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit was poured out. Even the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that was prophesied. This is going to happen. The disciples weren't believing for it. Pilate, he wasn't believing for it. Herod, they weren't believing for it. Pharisees, they weren't believing for it. It's going to happen. Here's the big one. The rapture. The rapture's coming. Whether people believe in it or not. 
even some people who don't believe it's coming but are born again are going to benefit from from that because they uh, they got born again. So these are the ones that I think we can get the best idea from why it is is written in this way. Why it is, is going in this direction. Because the way that it's reading, let me, let me read it again here for you. Verse 15. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So why do they need to diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God? Because Jesus is coming as Messiah whether they do or whether they don't. That's not going to change. But the events of these last group, I think these are the ones that are going to give us the best understanding of this verse. Each of these events did or will occur. Each of them did. They either already did occur or they are going to occur. Pentecost, the resurrection, those things, they occurred. The rapture, it is still to come. Still the second advent of, of Jesus, that is still to come. But let's take a look at, at each one of these. In the Passover, who benefited from obeying the prophecy? The people who obeyed it. They were spared. The day of Pentecost. Who benefited from the day of Pentecost? People who listened to Jesus and said, tarry and wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit is poured out. Until the day of Pentecost has come. How about the rapture? Who benefits from the rapture? People who obey the words of God and get in on it. I think what we're looking at here, and there are some... um, there are some accounts, there are some uh, commentary on the, the, the wording here in the, the Hebrew that has lent some to say it's not so much the obedience, it's their participation in it. But we see that in all the other ones. The, particip- the beneficial participation in the rapture, the beneficial participation in the day of Pentecost, the beneficial participation in all the other things that had occurred because people obeyed. There are things that God has declared that will happen on this earth. And they will happen because God declared them. But we will walk in the benefits of those if we do what He said. My obedience doesn't cause that thing to happen. My obedience puts me in a place to benefit from what God said is going to happen. And I think that's the best way that we can understand Understand this. So, in keeping with that, I wanted to end with these parts. Some guidelines for understanding prophecy. Because it sure seems like with some of the prophecies that are going on anymore that we're, we're not staying in line with us. So here's some guidelines for understanding prophecy. First off, a prophet is to speak what God spoke to them. That's what they're to do. You are to speak what God spoke to them. Any words added or subtracted or changed will alter the meaning and hinder our proper understanding. And if I don't understand it, I can't obey it. The prophet's role is to speak exactly what God said. Don't add, don't subtract, and don't change. The prophet is not to interpret. Interpretation should not be added or given in place of the word. Some prophets, you listen to them, and they're not given the word that God spoke to them. They're given how they understand the word that God spoke to them. That is wrong. That is not the role of a prophet. Whenever I hear somebody who claims to be a prophet 
and they give me a word from the Lord. And it is their interpretation of what God said to them. I will turn that person off and I will not tune them in again because they are not doing what God had told them to do. What God says to do, he told it to Ezekiel and he told it to a number of other prophets. But when we went through Ezekiel, remember how much God emphasized? Only say what I say. And we saw with Ezekiel how important that was. And because he was so obedient to it, God was able to speak words to him that any normal prophet he probably couldn't have spoken to because they would have messed up some of them. Well, I don't quite understand. Do you mean it was this way? And they would have changed the meaning. But Ezekiel was one that, all right, this is what God said. I don't understand it, but I don't need to understand it. I just need to speak it. There's a lot of prophets today, though, they, they say they hear a word from God and they give the interpretation of that word. That is not the role of a prophet. That is not what we are to do. And if they are to do it, I personally, I tune them out. I do not listen. You don't need to do that often. You, you start stepping into that area. Unless I hear that you repented of it, I'm not tuning in again because that is the role of the prophet. If any of these things are added by the prophet, we may get an understanding of the word, but it won't come from God because it's not the word of God. It's not what God declared. So that's the first thing. A prophet is to speak what God spoke to them. I got to make sure that they are speaking to me what God spoke to them. Moses was one of those that God spoke things to him. He came out and he told you. Remember Nathan? He goes before David. He had to speak what God told him. And I'm sure that was a hard thing for him to have done. Jeremiah, he got tired of speaking what God spoke to him because everybody's beating him up for it. But he eventually got back to the plate. No, I just need to, to go out there and just speak what, what God said. That's the most important thing of a prophet. Speak exactly what God said. That's why I tell you, if God ever gives you a revelation at nighttime or you're driving around somewhere, if you ever get a revelation from God, not that you're a prophet, but you got a revelation from God, God spoke something to you, write it down exactly as you heard it. Not as you think it was intended. Write it down exactly as you heard it. Because that's what you need to get hold of. Because your understanding may grow, oh, this is what he means, and it may be correct, but if you don't write it down exactly as you heard it, You'll, you'll lose something in that. So I always make sure I do that. If God says something to me, I write it down exactly as, uh, as I heard it. Here's the second part. We are here to test the Spirit to see if they are from God. Just because a person stands up and says, I'm a prophet, doesn't mean they're given the prophetic word of God. If we are to judge a prophetic word, then there must be something given to us to judge it by. And there are. There are things that are given to us to judge it by. Here's the third one. We who hear a prophetic word must seek understanding through God's word and his spirit. I got to seek it. I hear the word. Now I got to go after the understanding. I got to seek the understanding. I got to know what the understanding is. And I pursue God on it. I pursue God in his word. God, let your word shed light on this for me. Help me to understand this. We may not yet see all we need to for a clear understanding. Understand this about prophecy. For prophecy comes just like this one here in Zechariah, just like some of the ones that are in the book of Revelation. I may not be able to fully understand the prophetic word because not everything has happened that will unfold that will show me what's going on. A lot of times we understand what's going on and what we see around us. How many times do people see the ten nation confederacy being the European Union? Now we're pretty far away from that, at least most 
people are pretty far away from that. But that's the best thing we saw formulating, and we tried to make that fit. You've got to know what the Word says. You've got to know what God spoke. Because you may be understanding it one way right now, but in 10 years it may be something completely different. Oh, wait a minute. That can fit real well with this that's going on here. So know the Word that was spoken. We've got to seek understanding through God's Word and His Spirit. Interpretation may be added in the understanding of the Word, but it must stand apart from the Word spoken. Always make sure you separate. This is what I know God said. This is what I think it meant. This is what I think it means. So we have to, we have to understand these things. Always, that's why I always write it down. That's why God wrote down His prophetic messages in the Word of God. All right, people are going to go off here on interpretation, but this is what I said. This interpretation may turn out to be wrong. That's okay. God's word isn't wrong. Their interpretation was wrong. It's like that uh, one end times person who decided that these uh, uh, demon spirits coming out of the pit of hell were helicopters. <laughs> I still laugh at that one. But he had a lot of people believing it. That's what it was. Now, my wife told me a, a word that she heard this morning from somebody that she usually likes to listen to. And um, she asked me a, about it, what I, what I thought of it. But the prophetic word was that God was going to show signs or prove to the unsaved that he is real. Now, the first thing that came up on the inside of me is, nope. And I, I didn't know who it was who, who had prophesied it, but I, nope, that is not true. Because I have to interpret things, not just from the, my spirit, but also from the word. And I know from the word of God that's false. But in your spirit, too, your spirit will bear witness with it. Your spirit may just say, you know, I'm just not quite sure that that's... you got to listen to those kind of things. Um, I want to read to you a couple of scriptures. That This is uh, what Jesus spoke to two cities who rejected him. In Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which are done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted in heaven, or exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Next chapter over, Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. The preaching of Jonah, not the signs. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. When you hear a word like this, that God is going to show signs to prove to the unsaved that he is real, 
That can get your emotions going. That can get people who know unsafe people, oh, good, God is going to do some things and the people that I know, that I love, that I really want to see get in the kingdom will get pulled in and your emotions will pull you in on that. You cannot let that happen. We judge prophecy by the Word and by the Spirit. And the Word tells us that in the history of God dealing with man, He never gives you enough signs, wonders, miracles, whatever it might be, to overcome your unbelief. You have to have faith. He held back on doing so much in Sodom and Gomorrah. If I did anything more, they would have repented because of the works. I don't want them repented because of the works. I want them repented because of the message. I don't want Capernaum repenting because of the works. And we've done more works here than other places. I want them repenting because of the message. But they're not hearing the message. Nineveh heard the message. God wants them to hear the message. And so when you hear a prophecy like that inside yourself, you should go back to the Scriptures and judge the thing on the Scriptures. What does the Scripture say about that? And is that something that we can go with? And then beside that, your spirit will take you and to help you judge that as well. But make sure that if you, if you find some prophets that are out there, they had to deliver the word. The, the word that is there. My wife, in telling us, she was reminding me of the a prophecy that Brother Hagin had brought out. And the one night we were out there at Winter Bible, and it was a very long, very long service, and he had a very long prophecy. And he was talking about some things, and one of the things that he said was, you will never have more freedom than what you have now. It didn't make as much sense to us then as it makes to us now. But see, that's what a prophecy, prophecy a lot of times does. Because I don't have all the facts. I don't have all the understanding. I don't have all the things at my disposal to understand exactly what God is saying. But when the time comes, ah, now I see how that fits in. So always make sure you know what the word of the prophecy was. And get that burned on the inside of you. And then understand the interpretation. It's one of the things we always try to do when we're going through the book of Revelation or going through Daniel. This is what it says. This is what we think it means. I always try to make sure I separate it. Interpretation from the Word because it is so important that I understand what the Word says because down the road I can get more light to understand better what it means. Well, Father, we thank you for the words of prophecy that you give us. I thank you for the way that you help us to understand what these prophecies mean. That you give us these to help guide us through times that are difficult, times that are hard. We may not have all the understanding that we need, but when the time comes, we will. And I thank you for that. The enemy is always trying to speak false prophetic words and to get people with false hope and to go in false directions. But your word keeps us on the right path, keeps us going in the right way so that we cannot and will not be led astray. I thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.